Let's pray. God, you are the creator of all things, the one worthy of all our praise, the one worthy of all our affections, the one, the one that's going to satisfy our hearts, the one that died to forgive us of our sins. You are God. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word. Open our hearts that we can receive them. And open our minds that we can think well on what you've said. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Um, as you do that, I want you to imagine having a kid. Many of you don't really have to imagine that. But imagine having a kid that you're taking on a vacation. You're going on this family vacation. You're going down to Disneyland, right? All several hours of driving, and you've packed up the car. You're going down. You're going to expend countless dollars on rides and fun and snacks. You got, a t you got uh, your reservations at a really nice hotel, one with a pool themed like a medieval dragon. Uh, and, and the rooms are all themed like the Victorian era, so they're grandiose and wonderful and, and so comfortable. So you've got this all planned out. You've got it all planned out in your head. Um, and so you spend a week down in Disneyland. Yeah, not, th not two days, not three days, a week. And you're, you, you care for your kid, you nurture their hearts, you cultivate patience when you're waiting for rides, and you celebrate the excitement when you're going down every single, uh, going down all the different roller coasters and the screams and laughs and giggles spring forth. Finally, the time comes when you got to head home. You go through the normal struggles, pack up the car, have the kid crying, I don't want to go. And just, yeah, well, can't be homeless here. Uh, you're, you're all loaded, you're packed up, you're going home and you're driving north on I-5. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a semi truck on fire slowing down the traffic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you're driving north and all of a sudden your kid goes, daddy or mommy, um, I wish you'd show me that you love me. I, w I, wish, I wish I could trust and know that you love me, but I just can't. Can't you just show me that you love me? This is a similar situation to what we're actually going to encounter today. The Pharisees are going to say something that's really dumb. I want to say go figure. But, but the, the, the Pharisees are going to challenge Jesus to prove his divinity again. And instead of playing the game of these hard-hearted Pharisees, he's going to give us a parable of what happens when wicked people clean up their act but still remain wicked. So, Matthew chapter 12, uh, we're going to read verses 38 to 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of, a great, of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. In the liturgical church, we would say, thanks be to God, but it's sure hard to say thanks be to God to that one. So uh, I, I mentioned that this second portion is a parable. It's linked grammatically with what Jesus is talking about uh, when he, when he uh, rebukes the Pharisees. Um, usually it's used in a different manner, and we'll get to that. But starting in verse 38, I just want to point out that Jesus has proven his divinity, his power, his abilities over and over and over again. I mean, every week, every week, it seems like we're covering some new miracle or some repeated miracle on a different person that Jesus, Jesus is doing. Person that's blind. Oh, no. What are we going to do? Take him to Jesus. Boom. Sight returns. Person who's a leper. You know, their skin's white. Maybe it's pustuous. Maybe it's, maybe it's, the skin is literally falling off. And, and what are we going to do? Oh, let's take him to Jesus. See if Jesus can heal him. Guess what? We saw Jesus can heal him. Every single week, we're talking about some new miracle, some new sign that, that, that Jesus has done, proving that he's divine, that he's, he's powerful. I mean, anybody with, with half the knowledge of the Old Testament as the Pharisees and the scribes should, have go, should be going, yeah, this is the Messiah. But what are they doing? Are they doing that? No. No, instead, Jesus is spending a lot of Matthew correcting the Pharisees' bad theology. In verse 38, we have the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus. Are you kidding me? Like, I mean, maybe let's 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 just take this. Let's just take this from a different point. Maybe these are different Pharisees, right? Maybe these Pharisees haven't actually seen Jesus do these amazing things, but they've heard about it. They've heard about it and they've had people come in their regions that are saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus did this. So, I mean, let, we could we could go on the soft side there, but. Considering how Jesus responded, I'm not thinking that this was a group of Pharisees who, who had never experienced it before. No, what they wanted was something bigger than what Jesus had already done. They just needed a little more evidence, right? Show me something more, just a little more. Then I'll believe. They wanted to see it on their time, not God's time. Have you ever met someone like that? <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it's a neighbor, right? And your neighbor, your neighbor thinks, well, I think you're a nice person, but I just need a little more evidence. I'm going to borrow something else from you. I'm going to borrow something else. You know, don't you want to be a good neighbor? I had that. I, had, I lived in an apartment complex where the person that lived next door to me was always asking me for something more and more, and I would never get those things back. Um, but, but really, really, I think about somebody who who maybe you're, maybe you're preaching the gospel to them, 
and and they say, you know, I would believe, but uh, but I, I really want to hear from God in this area of my life. I I'd really be a dedicated uh, dedicated believer if God would do this thing for me. Have you ever met someone like that? Someone who they they put an obstacle in the way of their acceptance of the gospel. They 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 they're they're just hard hearted. They act like God owes them something. You know, God, you have to prove yourself to me. I'm the standard of right and wrong. I'm the standard of, of, of determining whether or not you even exist. Everyone else is stupid unless I accept it. That sounds more like people we know. <laughs> in fact, that probably sounds like a lot of us in this room. But people who demand things from God like this, you know, teacher, show us a sign. People like that show that they have a selfish and hard heart. The, the, this person has a hardened and impenitent or unrepentant heart. And they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2.5. Instead, uh, instead of trusting their own deceitful and wicked hearts, Jeremiah 17.9, they're actually in need of a new heart, they need a new spirit put within them. They need, they need their heart of stone removed. Those people that always just demand one more sign, those people that, that say, well, I would believe, but I have these problems. You ever find that when you talk to them about the problems, they have new problems. Now, nah, I'm still not going to get it. Nah, I'm still going to come up with arguments. A couple years ago, the, uh, a book by Lee Strobel, uh, The Case for Christ, was really popular. He reached an end of his arguments, but he really actually didn't reach an end of his arguments. He just understood, finally, by God's grace, that I, I can't not accept this. But that's not the case with everyone. It's not the case with the Pharisees. I mean, we're in chapter 12. We, we, we're, we're, we're not even halfway through <laughs> the book of Matthew yet. And they're going to see a lot more signs, and the Pharisees stay hard-hearted. People like the Pharisees who just want to see one more sign, just want a little more knowledge, just one more miracle. They're like the child in my opening illustration who just wants to know that their mommy and daddy love them, but they miss all the obvious things that their mommy and daddy love them. There really is no amount of proof or knowledge that's going to satisfy a stony heart. You can dress up a dog to look like a cheeseburger. It doesn't make it a cheeseburger. The Pharisees were dressed up, in this case, as righteous, knowledgeable, and in our verse, even humble. Teacher, teacher, would you show us one more sign? We, we wish to see a sign from you. But the fact that they're lying, they don't really accept Jesus as a teacher. In effect, they're exclaiming that everything Jesus has done up to this point maybe even could have been a trick, right? Um, I mean, Jesus did even say he only did what his father told him. So, I mean, may, may, maybe everything's a trick. I just want to see it with my own eyes. 
They want to watch his hands wave. They want to see power shoot forth from his fingers. I'd like to see that anyway, like lightning come out of each finger. You, ever, you know those little Tesla coil things, little bubbles that you put your finger on and the electricity attracted to your finger? I want to see that, right? Uh, but maybe they wanted to see his hands wave, power shoot forth from his finger, some grand display of miraculous explosion like a firework going in front of him. They wanted to see Jesus overthrow Rome, protect Israel. They wanted to see it come out of his fingers. Such is the request of a heart of stone. If I don't see it, I won't believe it. So how does Jesus respond to their request? Does he respond favorably? Does he say, yeah, here, let me go ahead and show you. No, instead he calls them for what they are. And this is why I don't think this is a new or an old set of Pharisees. I'm sorry, it's not a new set of Pharisees. It's an old set. Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. He's, he's actually, he's actually, he, he's making a blanket statement that an evil and adulterous generation, meaning a group, meaning a category of people, uh, seeks for a sign. He's calling the Pharisees evil, and when he uses the word adulterous, he actually means idolatrous. So it's even worse, because the Pharisees are not supposed to be idolaters. In fact, they are the pinnacle of Jewish excellence. The Pharisees are the ones who worship the true God, not an idol. But Jesus calls them for what they are. The reality is that they'd made God out to be a miracle worker at their command. Maybe not on purpose, but by going up to Jesus and saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They'd done that. They'd made their theological misconceptions of the Messiah into an idol. They, 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 they weren't just seeking proof of Jesus. They were demanding that God show them that this was the promised time, that Jesus was the coming Messiah. But what they wanted to see is they wanted to see it in their mindset, in their framework. They really just wanted to see Jesus do what they knew he was going to do. And it's because they had all these presumed upon understandings of exactly how it was going to go, Jesus calls them evil and idolatrous. Friends, God is not a gumball machine of miracles. You don't put in the right amount of coin, turn the dial, and expect to get a prize popping out at the little door at the bottom. God is not at your beck and call, nor is he at my beck and call. He's the sovereign ruler of all creation. He knows what's best. He knows what his plans are, both universally and personally. He knows exactly what he's going to do providentially in all of us, regardless of whether or not you and I understand it. God knows, and he's not obligated to respond to our demands. Just like he's not obligated to respond to the Pharisees. He doesn't even play their game. In not playing their game and doing a sign as they wish, he actually gave them expectant words. Notice, notice what he says. He, he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He already had in his mind the, the, the most miraculous, wonderful, incredible thing. And it involved the salvation of, of, of anybody who would call on his name, that would believe in him. 
But you know what? When Jesus says that, well, when, when he talks about the, 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 um, the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba and the fact that they're, they're, they're going to condemn the generation, Jesus is saying that not even that's going to convince them. And we, we see that. That's the rest of the Bible. If you turn past the, the Gospels and move on to Acts and read all the epistles, you read all the continuation of the history. The Pharisees were not convinced. They wouldn't have been convinced by the most incredible miracle because they had stony and hard hearts, and they, they simply just won't. They won't believe. And when Jesus refers to the, the three days and three nights that he's in the heart of the earth, he's referring to his death, his burial, his resurrection. He's, he's relating Jonah's existence in the fish's belly to his own existence in the grave. Now, all right, so just this is a side mention, but Jesus was not actually in the grave exactly three days and three nights by our own standards. It was a common Jewish idiom that even a part of, dip, part of a day was a full day and a full night. Uh, it, it carried on all the way into the, the 400s AD, that that was just the way that the Jew thought of time was, you know, uh, I mean, we, we do it too, right? Like, like, man, I mowed the lawn all day the other day. No, you didn't. You did it for like an hour. It was just hot. <laughs> so, so it it's it, it it was idiomatic. It was a normal thing. It was so Jesus, Jesus is using an idiomatic phrase. Um, an idiom is just like a culturally accepted term. But also, Jesus is affirming the literal fact of Jonah in the belly of the great fish. So, uh, if anybody ever says, "Oh, the Old Testament's a mix of fables," just be like, "Oh, Matthew twelve, uh, verse 40. He affirmed Jonah's existence just like his existence. That's the just as. So this section, Jesus is not playing the game of the Pharisees. He, he doesn't report to the Pharisees. He reports to his father. And he's going to do exactly as he is intended and exactly as his father is intended. He's going to say what his father intends. John 8. Um, so how, how, how do we read this in our context? How do, how do we apply this? How do we read the, the fact that Jesus is not going to play the game of the Pharisees? How do we understand that? Well, we have to accept that our God, the true God, the God who inspired and has testified in all of the Bible, he's in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3, if you want to cite me. But our God is in the heavens he does as he pleases. God is not at our beck and call. God sits on his throne, does as he pleases, not as we please. And I say that because there's actually some who claim to possess miraculous authority, miraculous powers for themselves. Uh, they, they, they say that they can command God to give them special power when they want it. These people are dangerous. They need to be avoided and they need to be called out. But, but, you and I often treat God the same way. We pray about stuff and then we get mad when God doesn't respond like we want him to. It's okay to be sad at some things. There have been many a prayer I've prayed that weren't answered and frankly because 
the prayer wasn't answered, I, I, was, I was saddened by the result. But, but most of us, when we pray, we pray expectantly. Not hopefully, expectantly. God will answer this. I prayed it really well. I just had a lady the other week actually call and ask me for prayer uh, from Salem. Um, she, she said the statement, the more people praying, the better chance I have. Um, I, I told her that, that that's, that's, not, that's not the way it works. Like, just because God's kingdom is not a voting democracy, right? If you have 500 people saying and it's 500 versus God, God wins. <laughs> so, um, but, but I, I told her that however God desires to answer the prayer, he's going to, um, and she needs to trust that God's going to work all things for the good of those who love him, Romans 8, 28. Um, however, she then replied in a way that made me a little sad. Uh, she said that if God doesn't answer her prayer just the way she wants, then it's going to be really hard to believe in him. That's, that's the sort of hard-heartedness that the Pharisees had. If you don't do it the way I want it, man, you're out, God. So how do we apply this? How do we live separate, different, distinct from the Pharisees? How do we stand on the day of judgment and not have the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba stand and go, man, you fools, you are condemned? Well, we have to trust. We trust that God has set up his own plans, that he works them into fruition, that he causes growth where he intends growth and decay where he intends decay. Jesus is greater than Jonah and Solomon. And he straight up says that. And because he is greater, those, those who believe and trust in, in him um, will not be judged by the people of Nineveh. They will not be judged by the Queen of Sheba. The Pharisees are in the generation that is judged by those Gentile nations. Gentiles, Gentiles, people that don't even have the covenants of God. I mean, you think about how crazy it is. Jonah's all ticked off. And in Jonah, like if we were to open to Jonah, he's all ticked off. That's why he got sucked into the fish is because he was trying to run away. Because he knows that God is going to be gracious to the people of Nineveh, that he's going to grant them repentance. And the Gentiles don't deserve it. He's, he, he was mad. He gets sucked into a fish, vomited out, not spit out. It's not like VeggieTales where it's a whale and the whale opens the mouth. It's a fish that pukes him out. You check me on that. Uh, <laughs> and, and then he goes and preaches, preaches uh, judgment of Nineveh. And you know what? God is gracious. God is kind. God grants them repentance. And this is a Gentile group, a bunch of true idolaters. And they turn and they are going to condemn the Pharisees, the ultra-super, hyper-religious people in his day. So will people today be condemned by those, by those who have faith, yet didn't have complete and full access to God's revelation in his word. There's going to be people throughout all of time all of time that God worked miraculously with, including Nineveh, including Abraham. Abraham was an idolater. 
And God, God went straight into his, his, God went straight into Abraham's life and said, I have chosen you. I've chosen you from among all the people. And Abraham goes, <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm an old man. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to have kids. You're, you're a weirdo. Um, and God was right. Abraham was wrong. So people like Abraham, the people of Nineveh, the queen of Sheba, people who are Gentile by birth are going to be condemning countless individuals who should have known better. Jesus has been revealed. He's been recorded in the scripture for our benefit. Therefore, we need to trust him, read his word and grow in him. Never stop growing. Never stop trusting. Let your heart find rest in him. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't grow in your wickedness and your hard heart because a stony heart tends to just get harder as time goes on. It's kind of like, kind of like if, uh, if you have a rock that keeps having sediment washed down on it, the rock grows, but not really. It just gets more and more on it, but it gets spikier. It gets harder. It gets worse. It doesn't erode. It grows. A stony heart gets harder. So don't be like the Pharisees who grow in wickedness, who grow in their ever harder hearts at the gospel of Jesus as, uh, as he presents and acts on his own sovereign and perfect plan. Something greater than Jonah and Solomon has come. His name is Jesus. He was here, he is here, and he will come again. Amen. So what about this parable? What, what, what about this grammatically linked se section here? Uh, verses 43 to 45. Um, the, these are of special difficulty because they're often picked out of the context. They're often set on their own pedestal. And then, and then we're, we're, we're told by certain individuals that, uh, it's, that Jesus is declaring, this is how demons work. This is how unclean spirits work. They're exercised and they inevitably return back. That's what happens. This is, you, you read it right here. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's really not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is explained, well, not explained, but it's implied in verse 43. Because when you read 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out, not cast out, the Greek word for cast out is ekbalo. Uh, it's, it's essentially thrown out. That's where we get the word ballistics. But... Uh, but, but that's what cast out is. Here, the word is actually uh, uh, gone out of its own volition, left. Kind of like when you left your house this morning to come to church. Were you thrown out of your house? Probably some of you, uh, <laughs> or dragged out. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but you all left of your own volition, so Jesus is not explaining what happens when a demon is cast out. No. No. What, what he's saying is when, a, when, when an unclean spirit leaves its home, it's gone out of its own volition, and it inevitably returns. You and I see this in our own lives, actually, 
We see this uh, when, when people clean up their lives. Let's say they've got a drug addiction. They quit the drugs, they, they, they get the help they need, they start on a path of recovery, but then as soon as something hits that's really hard and they, they see another temptation and, uh, or they feel that temptation, they see maybe a way out, maybe a quick way out returning to their drugs, what do they do? They take the drug, they fall back into it. And usually when somebody relapses, they don't relapse to the same condition, instead they relapse hard. They relapse to a state that's worse off than, than they were before they, they quit the first time. Uh, we've also, we also see this in Israel. Uh, I'm re I, I just finished First and Second Kings in my devotional reading. Um, and if you want to read a really depressing book, First and Second Kings, there's like you know, a few chapters that are amazing, but the rest of it just wicked and terrible. What you see there are, are the wicked kings in Israel. They're all bad. And then you see the wicked kings in Judah and, and some who are, who are righteous, who actually turn to God. But they're not, they're not perfect, but yeah, some good ones. But after every single king who seeks after God and returns to a good, a good righteous uh, worship, you know what happens after that? Israel relapses. Well, Judah. Judah relapses, and it's even worse than before. What we can learn from, from those situations and also these verses is that when reform is only skin deep, it's not going to end up well. I, I was a bad student. Believe it or not, I, I was a really bad student. I mean, I, I almost flunked out of middle school. That takes, that takes class. Uh, so so I, I, I was a bad student all the way up until my senior year of high school. And there were times, like, I would get better, right? Like, okay, this time I'm going to be really good at doing all my homework and all my reports. And I'm going to stay really on top of things. And I'd, I'd do great, like, the first, like, month. Man, I'd be on fire. If, that, if my report card was determined by that first month, yeah, but you know what? It's not. It's determined on the, the rest of the nine-month school cycle. Stupid school cycles. And, and I, what I found is basically every year I tried, I just got worse and worse and worse. I just quit. As soon as things got hard, man, just I'm out. I'm done. That, didn't, that did actually change by God's grace. But, but, but man, I, I felt this. My reform was only skin deep. Right? It was like I washed away all my temptations, right? I'm going to unplug the, uh, the, the internet cable. I'm going to um, shove something in the power supply of my computer and not let it turn on. Not really. I would just unplug the cable and I'd move it away. It's, I wanted it to sound dramatic, but it sounded dumb. So, but I, I, would, I, would do, I would do anything I could to like be good. It was a skin-deep reform. But then I'd always relapse, not into drugs, but into just sedentariness, laziness, slothfulness. And when that happens, when temptation rolls in, it corrupts even worse than before. That's what we're talking about in verses 43 to 45. And we know that because of the very last sentence in, in verse 45, so also it will be with this evil generation. 
Jesus is not making a blanket. This is what the spiritual world is like. Jesus is using this as a parable to try and explain to the Pharisees, man, you look good. You look good. You got a clean life. You're doing all these wonderful things. But, but as, soon as, as soon as you're tempted to do evil, you're going to do evil, and it's going to be much worse. You are going to be accursed. You're going to be judged by these, by, by these Gentiles who knew better than you, and you know more than they do. The presumed theological and moral precision of the Pharisees was basically a form of cleaning up the house after an unclean spirit had left. The first century of Judaism is often presented as one of the best of Judaism. Do you know that? Uh, most scholars look at the first century Judaism as like that pinnacle. And Christians do this too. Often, oftentimes we say, well, we need to turn back to what the first century church was like. Well, God has actually advanced the church since then. Not, not saying the old stuff is bad, but things have happened. Um, so so the, that first century is in every way, like just looked at with all this wonder and wonderment and, and power and, and uh, how far the Jews have fallen even since then. They've written rules upon rules of the law. They, they've, they've fallen into what we now call liberalism, which is really just excusing sinful and licentious behavior. You've got Orthodox Judaism, which is really legal, and then you've got mm, normative uh, nominal Judaism, which is just essentially atheism. The generation that the first century Jews had was a swept clean home, but it was empty. And boy, when, when, when temptation and, and evil and wickedness presented themselves again, it went south. So how then can we apply this parable in our new covenant context? We're not the first century. Well, first, I, I, we need to recognize that this parable still holds true. Right. Whenever I mean, I, call me a pessimist, but whenever things start looking up, I know that there's going to be a crash on the other side. Uh, whenever, when, whenever things politically like, oh, we're going to get the politics all cleaned up. Mm, yeah, but then that's going to pave the way for more cor corrupt, evil politicians to climb right on in. Like, call me a pessimist. I am a pessimist, and in that regard, I am a complete and utter pessimist. Anything that is not godly and, and filled with the spirit of God is ultimately going to fail. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to fail worse than it did before. Again, call me a pessimist. Uh, so we have to recognize that this parable still holds true. Um, oftentimes, man, people come to Christianity, they come to church uh, with stony hearts, and they demand that God show them a sign at their beck and call. And when they don't get what they wanted, they leave. Very often, people use and abuse the church. They come in, they get the help they need, they take their own benefits and blessings, um, and then they return to their former life. They get a clean house, but their reform is only skin deep. Their house gets vacant and swept, and they feel a sense of cleanliness, but they're really walking towards a state that's worse than the first. I know all of you have experienced that. All of you have seen that, whether or not you know Christ, and I'm looking right where Paul normally would be, but I'm looking right at the, right at the, the back door because uh, I don't want to look at anybody. But, but you've all seen that. You've all seen the church 
push away hard-hearted people. And, and you love them and you care for them and you, you, you sweep them up in gracious compassion. And what do they do? They throw a flaming bag of dog poop on your doorstep and they kick it and they run away. And that's the way it feels. It feels like, like just you've been, you've been destroyed. People use and abuse the church, but, but they run off to greater and greater sin. And you watch, and you watch the spiral of their lives, and you plead with God, please bring them back. Bring them back, maybe even into my family. Maybe this is your own family that you're watching this. You've watched their house get swept clean several times, but every single time they get worse, and they get worse, and they get worse. And, and when, they, when they leave every single time, you feel like Proverbs 26.11 is your life verse. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. But there's also a misconception about the church. There's a misconception that you need to have your house clean before you walk in the door. That is not true. Anybody who thinks they have to walk through the door of a church with their lives perfect, wearing a suit and tie, pretending like everything's hunky-dory, those people are wrong. And they need that the church is meant to receive the weak and the weary like the Lord does, compassionately caring for the struggles. So is it wrong to love someone who abuses the church? No. No, in fact, it's your calling to love those people who are who are hurting who are dirty and messed up. People should feel more welcome to walk through a church door with all their uncleanness than they should feel welcome in a community center that they, than, than anywhere else in the world. They should feel more welcomed by, by sinners saved by grace than sinners that are unsaved. As one pastor put it, if there's not a smoking section in our church, then we're doing something wrong. So how do we live not the Pharisees again? And I hate saying that because that's essentially every single bit of the application is, how do we not be the Pharisees? Well, ultimately, we should not be the ones who judge God. We should not be the ones who act like God owes us an explanation or owes us a miracle or owes us anything. We should not be like the people who stand in judgment of God saying, listen, God, I know your word better than you do. I, I, I know what it says and you serve me. And I use kind of a caricature there because nobody in this room is going to say, well, I never judge God, right? Or everybody's going to say that. I never judge God. But man, you and I judge God all the time. God, why didn't you judgment? <laughs> right there. God, why can't you judgment? So if we're going to apply this, we need to be people like that. People that say, you know what, God, I'm humble. Instead of acting humble and saying, teacher, we should, we should actually be humble and recognize, you know what, God, your word says a lot of things I don't understand. I'm probably not going to understand them, but I'm going to keep endeavoring and I'm going to keep growing and I'm going to keep loving. But we, we need to apply this parable specifically 
by, by loving the people that come in and abuse us as Christians, by, by, by being like Christ who took the punishment of sinners while being crucified by sinners to save sinners. That's, that's what's going to happen to us. We need to trust God. We need to trust what his plan is, not in how we might think it. he needs to fit our plans. That's a difficult command. It's one that even the Pharisees and the scribes weren't, weren't, weren't able to do. Um, their idol was honestly their concept of God and his plans. They couldn't be corrected by God himself uh, because their hearts were made of stone. And there's been a consistent theme arising in our text for the past two chapters especially. So I'm going to summarize the application like this. If you remember just one thing, it's remember these two sentences. God is not who we say he is. He's who he says he is. And God does not do as we think he will, but as he intends. God is God. We are not. We apply our text today by not demanding signs or, 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 or pushing plans on God because he knows what he's planned and he knows what's good. We pray that we would not be the ones who have our houses swept clean and have uh, have. Seven demons more evil than the first come in. If you do the math, that's eight. Anyway, um, but instead, we ask for the strength to be faithful until he fulfills his plans. That's how you apply the text to today. You ask God to let you be faithful, to give you the strength to be faithful. That's how we apply this. Let's pray. Let's close and sing our last song. God, we are weak and weary sinners. We, are, we struggle with temptations, vile and normal. We, we, uh, we, we transgress your law left and right. We, we are people who, who need your grace, who need your mercy, who don't want a house swept clean so that, so that temptation and unclean spirits can crawl back in, but instead we want a house that has its doors bolted shut, whereas temptations and unclean spirits rise. Instead of being able to come back in, they find a room filled with praise, a room filled with your glory, with satisfaction and awe in you. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who judge you, but instead we want to be your people who faithfully strive to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't be like the person who cleans up his act and gets assaulted by evil more wicked than before. Don't be the person who says who God is and can't be convicted when, other, when people say otherwise. But be the person who graciously remembers that God is who he says he is not who we say he is. Go in peace, saints.